It's good to be back. Many of you know I've been out these last few weeks because we had our fourth child, a son named Otto. Originally, when I was thinking of what I'd say when I came back, I was going to share a bit of his birth story because it was not dull. Megan went into labor in the middle of the night, and as I drove her to the hospital, we got pulled over by the police, so that was a fun adventure. But I'll have to tell you that story another time, uh, because last week we had an even harder adventure, when we unexpectedly had to take Otto to the emergency room. By God's grace, Otto is home now. He's healthy, and this was one of the harder things Megan and I have had to endure. Those few days in the hospital, right around the corner here at Children's, those few days were so disruptive, so chaotic. Beloved, I wonder if you're familiar with a similar kind of turmoil. I wonder if you're here longing for peace. Peace inside you. Peace outside you. Maybe among your relationships, there's turmoil. And no doubt in our world, there's turmoil and war. When Megan and I were at Children's, we saw some hard things with families who were having much worse weeks than we were. And in many ways, we're still processing all this, but you know what's clear to me right now? Today is a gift. Today is a gift, and today is a wonderful day to come to Jesus afresh. Turn to Mark 9. Mark chapter 9. It's good to be back in Mark's gospel. Can someone say amen in the house of the Lord? Uh, We'll get our bearings for where we're at in Mark in a little bit. Uh, But visitors, so you know, I had been preaching through Mark back in the spring. And then I preached some other parts of the Bible before I went on paternity leave. Now, putting down the book of Mark on paternity leave uh, meant I had some time to pick some other books up. And what I picked up was C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. C.S. Lewis got a shout out last week from Pastor Cam. And uh, fun fact, November is his birthday month. So he'll get another shout out this week. Anyway, in his his Space Trilogy, C.S. Lewis tells the story of Dr. Elwin Ransom. Who gets taken to another planet. And does not come back the same. Lewis has a great line. He says, a man who has been in another world does not come back unchanged. In fact, Ransom was so different in how he thought and acted that people started to be unnerved by him. And what was indeed unnerving was that how Dr. Ransom began to act, how he began to live was so peculiar that it made people question how they acted and how they lived. 
Friends, what was unnerving, what drove people crazy, what added to the terror of madness, as C.S. Lewis says, was that people looking at Dr. Ransom's life began to realize, however quietly, that those folks whom everyone calls crazy, people like Dr. Ransom, those might be the people who all along actually see the world as it really is. You know? Maybe he's right and I'm wrong. Maybe he's seeing things right side up. And I'm the one who maybe my whole life has seen things upside down. Friends, just because a group of people think they are right about something does not mean that they are right. In fact, there can be a whole community of people who might think one way about something, and there can be one individual in that community who thinks differently, and that individual, despite the fact that everyone else calls them crazy, that individual might be right, while everyone else is wrong. In other words, just because you stand alone does not mean you stand in error. The individual who stands alone could be right. And tonight, we're coming to the rightest individual who ever lived. Jesus of Nazareth. And he's going to tell us how things really are. How they really should be. Friends, Jesus doesn't go with the current of this world. He goes against it. In fact, all the impulses... All the instincts, all the goals, all the treasure that this world and all its shiny billboards and advertisements train us to seek, Jesus pushes us toward the opposite of those things. His ways and wisdom seem backward, but Jesus actually sees straight. He's like, nah, my my way ain't backward. It's actually the way forward. Beloved, what I'm trying to say is Jesus' kingdom isn't upside down. It's right side up. I heard Pastor Dustin call Jesus' kingdom the right side up kingdom, and that stuck with me. Uh, Friends, Jesus comes with a kingdom that does not go with the current. In fact, his kingdom, in his kingdom, there is a whole new river of life. And we're going swimming tonight by God's grace. Let's dive in. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. We will read till verse 50. Hear now the word of the Lord, starting in verse 30. They, Jesus and his disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But the disciples did not understand the saying. And were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked the disciples, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
And Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, what do we see in the right side up kingdom? Jesus has three answers for us. Here is the first. We see humility. What do we see in the right side up kingdom? Point number one, we see humility. Beloved, Jesus is calling you to humility. Uh, The wisdom of the kingdom produces humility, not rivalry, not one-upmanship, not selfish ambition. No, the citizens in Jesus' kingdom are teammates, not rivals. Servants, not superiors. You see this in verses 30 through 41. Let's look again. Jesus is walking with his disciples, verse 30 says, and they're passing through Galilee. And on this walk, Jesus says something jarring. He tells his disciples, the son of man, referring to himself, is going to die. So remember, Mark's gospel is a narrative. It has a point. Jesus is heading somewhere. He's going to Jerusalem to die. Uh, He's not broadcasting this, right? The text says he doesn't want people knowing. And we've talked about this messianic secret before. Jesus knows people won't understand his death quite yet. So he doesn't publicize it often. And so here for the second time in Mark, Jesus talks about his coming death. And indeed, the disciples, verse 32, don't understand. They're afraid. The text says. And then the text changes. Jesus and his disciples keep traveling, but the disciples start arguing. Now, on one level, this isn't new. Uh, The last time we were in Mark, we saw the disciples arguing with the religious leaders in chapter 9, verse 14. But now the disciples aren't arguing with the scribes, but with each other. And they argued about which one of them was the greatest. Now, you can almost hear them, right? I'm the man. No, no, no. I'm the man. No, no, no. I'm the one following Jesus the best. Oh, we can almost hear it. 
But then again, maybe that's because we can almost hear ourselves, can't we? I'm the boss. I'm in charge. I'm the competent one. I'm the one people come to for answers. Man, this place is lucky to have me. Who would do it if not for me? Friends, resident in every human heart is the motive that drove people to build the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. And the name above every name, Jesus, knows that tower is still standing in our hearts. And so he asks his disciples, hey, what were y'all talking about on the way here? And this just feels like a scene with a parent and their kids. Like the kids are watching something on TV they shouldn't be. The parent comes in. They change the channel real quick, but the parent knows. Beloved, Jesus knows. And so Jesus asked, what were you talking about? Verse 34, but the disciples kept silent. You can imagine them just looking at each other, looking at their feet. Shuffling around in shame, but in their shame, Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't even say they shouldn't want to be great, but he does show them a better way. He does show them what true greatness is. He says, yeah, the world says if you want to be great, you, you got to get to the top. But I say to you, if you want to be great, you got to go to the bottom. You see how Jesus flips things. Right side up. This is greatness in the world's eyes. But Jesus says, no, this is greatness. Jesus says, if you want to be great, don't seek to be a king or a queen, but a servant. In fact, if you've grown up Christians, want to be big, be small. Like a child. Beloved, in in our passage, Jesus talks about children twice. Keep this in mind for our sermon next week, Lord willing. But in our text tonight, Jesus says we ought to receive the little children. And he'll say later in chapter 10, we should do this because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Friends, Jesus' kingdom belongs to those who are humble. To those who are not self-important. To those who are willing to be led. Willing to be Held by God. I love this phrase in verse 36 where it says Jesus took the child in his arms. We ought to be like and receive those who are willing to be helped and hugged by Jesus. If we don't receive and welcome people like this, we don't really receive and welcome Jesus. But if you do receive and welcome other believers, you receive Jesus. In verse 37, Jesus says, you don't just receive me, but him who sent me, the Father. He's saying to the disciples, when you receive those who trust me with childlike faith, you don't just receive me, Jesus the man, you receive God. Beloved, how we treat other Christians is how we treat God. We better receive them. And you might wonder, well, what does it look like to receive another Christian? Mark answers by showing us what it doesn't look like. In verses 38 through 41, we see the disciples tell other Christians to stop casting out demons because, hey, you're not on our team. 
Verse 38, look with me. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Ooh, friends, isn't it haunting? Last time in Mark, it was the scribes of the Pharisees arguing with the disciples about exercising demons. Now it's the disciples who are sounding pretty pharisaical as they tell other followers of Christ to stop it. Don't do it that way. We're Team Jesus. We're the professional Christians around here. And it is this petty, self-centered, territorial, small-mindedness that Jesus pushes back on. He's like, John, what? Anyone not against me is for me. Why are you telling them to stop? That person isn't our opponent. They're our teammate. Beloved, every church, in every denomination, including those who aren't officially a part of any denomination, even though ICC is biblically Baptist, but every Christian church has to be careful to reject the mindset of, oh, we're the real Christians over here. We figured it out. Friend, if that church over there is preaching and believing and being held by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are not our rivals. They are our sisters and brothers. Amen? We have an enemy and it's not each other. And this is exactly why we pray for and root for other churches and other denominations, be it the, the Saints at Shades Valley Community Church, who are E-free, Evangelical Free, and the Saints at Shades Mountain Baptist Church, who are SBC, Southern Baptists. Last week, Cam prayed for Zach Hicks and Jess Leslie, who are EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian. And beloved, those churches are also praying for and rooting for us. Ryan Grawl texted me and Cam the other day saying, hey, our church, Red Mountain, the PCA church, prayed for y'all at Iron City. And beloved, that is what Jesus is looking for. Churches who help and who work with and who serve one another. Just like we did with that Mike Kruger event with Covenant Presbyterian Church. But the disciples here were thinking and talking like the world. So they weren't looking to be servants. They were looking to be superiors. And that carnal, ungodly, free marketplace competitiveness is exactly what happens when churches start focusing more on the ministry. Hey, casting out demons is our thing. Yeah, that petty jealousy is exactly what happens when churches start focusing more on the ministry than the Savior who saves all kinds of people and puts them in all kinds of churches. Beloved citizens of the kingdom are servants. And to encourage you, ICC, I think there are a lot of servants in this church. The people who pick up trash after service. People who move boxes for someone they don't know. People who receive the little ones downstairs. And if I can just speak personally. When Otto was in the hospital, this church stepped up, or better yet, I should say, y'all stooped down and served my family. Megan and I were running around. It didn't feel like we had time to pray, but y'all's prayers carried us. 
Y'all fed us, called us, came and sat with us in the hospital. You sat at our house so I could go sit with Megan in the hospital. But something Megan and I said a couple years ago when we moved here is that we don't, we didn't have any family here. And I'm realizing that's just not true. It is true. We don't have any biological family here. Oh, but we have family. I'm looking at them. And you are beautiful servants who will receive your reward. I know this from the way you served me. Ellen knows from the way you served her. I know this from the way you serve the kids of this church. And Jesus again talks about kids to teach us on how we ought to be in his kingdom. We, we've seen we should be humble. Jesus talks about kids again to show us that we should also be holy. What do we see in the right side of kingdom? We see holiness. Point number two. What do we see in the right side of kingdom? We see holiness. Beloved. Jesus is calling you to holiness. The wisdom of the kingdom produces holiness, not temptation, trickery, or sinful indulgence, and not using or abusing other people. No, the citizens of Jesus' kingdom wage war against our sin, not against one another. We see this in verses 42 through most of verse 50. Let's look again. Jesus has spoken of those who are servants and receive those of childlike faith and who get their reward. That is, their heavenly reward. But what of those who, what of those who don't? Friends, heaven is not the only realm Jesus talks about in our text. He also talks about hell. Three times over. Jesus, in fact, talked about hell more than anybody in the Bible. And we will not be a faithful church of Jesus if we do not also talk about it. Our church's statement of beliefs say, we believe that sinful man stands opposed to God and in that sin faces the eternal just wrath of the almighty God. Beloved, Jesus takes temptation and sin and hell seriously. Because temptation leads to sin. And if Jesus has not paid for your sins, then sin will lead to hell. This is why Jesus called out the disciples' sinful bickering in the last point. You see, in our last point, Jesus made clear that the way of the kingdom is not rivalry, but reverence. That is, we revere one another. We honor each other. This is what we're going to be doing at Tuesday's prayer meeting. But we're going to be engaging in the only competition the Bible commends, outdoing one another and showing honor. So come ready on Tuesday to brag on another church member. And in tonight's text, Jesus goes on to say, hey, since we love and value and respect and are in league with other believers, don't lead them into sin. In fact, the only thing worse than you sinning is you leading another one of God's children to sin. Oh, friends, Jesus does not mince words. He says it would be better for you to die than to lead another one of his children into sin. Can we sit with that a minute? 
Can we tremble? Can we read verse 42? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This struck me while I was preparing this sermon. Beloved, when you tempt another Christian to sin, when you entice them, when you arouse their flesh, when you encourage them to question what God wants of them, you know who you're being like. And not being like the Savior, but the serpent. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? You see, beloved, when the disciples were arguing with each other, they weren't receiving one another. They were tempting one another. And talking about who was the greatest, they were provoking one another to get self-righteous and proud and angry. And the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God in you or in others. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God in you or in others. So Jesus says to his disciples, how about instead of leading others of my children to sin or being Pharisees and policing other people's ministries... How about you fight your own sin? How about you worry about you and your temptation? In fact, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to enter heaven with one hand than hell with two. Now, to be clear in this section... Jesus employs a rhetorical device called hyperbole. Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He's not so much encouraging physical mutilation. After all, the problem is not our hands so much as it is our hearts. And yet that's just it. Jesus' point is that your heart, your flesh is weak. So don't coddle that which leads it astray. Cut it off. Beloved, Jesus is calling for holy amputation. There are indeed some things, or maybe even some people, we need to cut off. These things or relationships may not be inherently sinful, but if they are tempting us to sin, Jesus says, cut them off. Beloved, all things may be lawful, but not all things are helpful. Cut the unhelpful off. And I... I want to encourage you, ICC, because I'm looking at a congregation, and I know some of you struggle with lust. So, with childlike faith, you have cut off shows that have scenes of nudity. Some of you struggle with getting drunk. So, with childlike faith, you have cut off going to that happy hour with that group of coworkers. Some of you struggle with despair and political idolatry. So you cut off that cable news show that was feeding you false narratives about the world and the other side. Beloved, if you have been pruned and you are pruning your soul, God sees you. And he delights in your fight for holiness. And he sympathizes with your weakness. For we do not have a high priest 
who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Dear child of God, you might be nervous to draw near to Jesus because you feel your weakness so deeply. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Come to him in confidence, trusting he is the one who came down to you. And this leads us to our third point. But before we turn there, I want to say one last thing about holy amputation. And here it is. There has never been an amputee who doesn't have a scar. There has never been an amputee who doesn't have a scar. Friends, holiness hurts. In fact, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I say this because, as I mentioned a moment ago, this room is full of people who are faithfully cutting off that which causes them to sin. And you may be thinking, I know cutting off that thing was the right thing to do, but it still hurts. I know I shouldn't have been dating that guy who isn't a Christian. I know it was right to break up with him, but the loss of the relationship still hurts. And I want to remind you that you are not crazy or defective or less godly. Friends, no life-saving surgery is without its pain, even if it leaves a scar. And that scar may hurt, You may think it's ugly, but God doesn't. And in the next life, these scars might just be badges of honor that show, yep, this Christian fought. And yep, this Christian, by God's grace, overcame. (laughs) Beloved, you know when Jesus was resurrected, he had those scars in his hands and his feet still, right? Dear Christian, behold, in heaven, yours is a scarred Savior. And Charles Spurgeon once said, these scars, his scars, are the memorials of his fight. They are his trophies. Don't hear Spurgeon wrong. He says Christ's main trophy are the children of God whom he has redeemed, but his scars. These are, quote, the memorials of the fight, and these the trophies too. Church family, what fight is old brother Charles referring to? He's referring to the fight of all fights, the one that made peace. What do we see in the right side of kingdom? We see peace. Point number three, what do we see in the right side of kingdom? We see peace. Not arguing or bickering, not tempting or provoking, not judging or policing, but Peace, peace, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither neither let them be afraid. Peace. We see this in verses 50 and 30 through 32. Let's look at them again. Jesus ends our passage in a really curious way. Did you see that last phrase in verse 50? Be at peace with one another. Peace, peace. 
Cam, you preach a lot about peace. Romans 12. Now living at peace with one another. And it's striking to me that the wisdom of the kingdom leads to peace. Right? The disciples with the mind of the world start arguing with each other, but the mind of heaven leads to peace. The disciples with the mind of the world start tempting each other and tattling on others, but the mind of heaven leads to peace. Beloved, peace is one of the chief evidences that the kingdom is at hand. This is why Jesus was so concerned that his disciples not fight in worldly ways. What does he say? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. And this is exactly why Satan wants to keep us divided and fighting, sisters and brothers. So we will be citizens of this world as opposed to citizens of Christ. Saints, that old serpent doesn't want us praying. He doesn't want us encouraging one another. He wants us tempting one another and fighting each other, which leads to the question, how do we get this peace Jesus is talking about? I mean, yes, we should apply the wisdom of his kingdom. But as we've said, our hearts are and our flesh are weak. We don't always choose to serve our fellow Christian. Sometimes we still bicker with them and judge them. God help us. We may even tempt them. How can we get this peace Jesus requires of us? The truth is, we can't get it on our own. The truth is, we're like kids reaching up for something that is on a, on a shelf too high for us to grab. And so our big brother Jesus came and brought it down for us. Beloved, what do the scriptures say? He himself, Jesus, is our peace. Ephesians 2.14. And what do the scriptures say? But that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20. Friends, the disciples did not understand it when Jesus was talking about his death. But by God's spirit, we have access to the reality of his crucifixion. We can understand what Jesus meant in verse 31 when he said the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Isn't that what happened on the night when he was betrayed? That Jesus willingly let himself be handed over? Wasn't it on that very night that he said my kingdom is not of this world? If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Oh, but delivered he was. Crucified he was, and he was crucified for you. For you, for you, for you, for you, for me, for all of us who have sought our own kingdom rather than his, for all of us who have exalted ourselves rather than him, for all of us who deserve to be cast to the bottom of the sea. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place for our sins paying the debt that we owe to God and for our transgressions and taking the punishment we deserve for our wrongdoing. Friends, the wages of sin is death and that is exactly what Jesus paid with his life that you might be forgiven if you turn from your sins and trust in what he has done on your behalf. He died. But make no mistake, because the gospel is not good news if the Savior is a dead Savior. But I ain't got bad news for you today because the scriptures say Christ Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. 
Friends, I, I know teaching on hell may sound hard, but the living Christ is preaching to you tonight to let you know that you don't have to go there. You don't have to go to hell. You never have to go. In fact, if you're trusting in Christ, this is the closest to hell you'll ever be because your Savior endured the wrath of God for you and he has cast your sins to the bottom of the sea and God has put up a sign that reads, no fishing. Beloved, the next time Satan is afflicting your conscience and making you feel guilty about your sin, you look him in the ugly face that he has And you say with a smile, my Savior has paid the debt in full, so I don't have to go to the lake of fire that you are destined for, Satan. No, mine is the river of life that is in Christ Jesus. Tell the devil that. He has no power over you. You let him know. Tell him. Friends, this is the river of life. That's what's our inheritance in Christ. This is the wisdom of the kingdom. Jesus is the wisdom of the kingdom. Jesus is the greatest. I mean, do you see how he is the very fulfillment of our text? Beloved, Jesus, he's not calling you to do or be anything that, he, that isn't what he already was and is for us. He calls us to be servants and he is the suffering servant. He calls us to be children, and he is the one who wraps us up in his arms, the Son of God. He calls us to be at peace, and he himself is our peace. So, Jesus, Jesus, that's what we call you. Jesus, Jesus, it's good to be preaching Jesus again. Friends, I didn't come with a complicated word. I came with a simple one. The wisdom of the kingdom produces peace among men and peace between God and men. That is the point of this sermon in a sentence. The wisdom of the kingdom produces peace among men and peace between God and men. The wisdom of the kingdom, that is Jesus' kingdom, produces peace among men, that is mankind, and peace between God and men. Another way we could say it is in the kingdom of Jesus, we wage war against our sin, not against one another. And we do this because our Savior fought the forces of darkness, fought all temptation and was delivered up as the perfect sacrifice in our place. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your wisdom, which is to say we need you. We want you. There is nothing on earth we desire beside you. So fill us with your spirit that we may be at peace. We pray in your name. Amen. Beloved, uh, one thing Jesus tells us to do or tells us about his kingdom is that we will feast there. We will sing it at the prayer meeting on Tuesday. We will feast in the house of Zion. Uh, we have a preview of that feast in the Lord's Supper. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 saying, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks 
judgment on himself. Uh, this means we understand that this meal is open to o- only to those who've trusted in Christ. If that's not you, we'd ask that you not come forward, but that you come to us after the service. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to trust in Jesus. A couple of us will be back there at the doors afterward. And yet for those of you who are trusting in Jesus, please remember, this table isn't a table of judgment, but a feast to remind believers that Christ was judged in our place and that Christ is coming again. In terms of how this meal works, you'll come forward to receive your elements, but please wait to eat the bread and drink the cup because we're all going to take them together. When we've received our elements, I'll come back up and lead us in doing just that. Come and receive your elements, beloved, in Jesus' name.